Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It is sometimes serious, sometimes sad, and most times, Joanna, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Special thanks as usual to one of our top contributing patrons today, Chloe. Thank you, Chloe, Yay, as Chloe. always, for your support. Shout out to Chloe. Therapist Next Door podcast is 100% listener funded and commits that we will never work with advertisers. Mm-mm. We don't we don't believe that it is our business or our job to tell you what kind of mattress to buy or encourage you to give money to an exploitative therapy service or tell you where to order homemade salads from. Mm. As we believe that labor should be paid, we ask that listeners who are able to contribute, please contribute what you can so that we can continue to be a platform to clinicians who further destigmatize mental health and demystify therapy. Every episode, we thank one of our top contributing patrons. So thank you again, Chloe. Learn more about perks and way to support Joanna and Sarah. Joanna is me, Sarah, Sarah, at patreon.com slash TND podcast. That's patreon.com slash T-N-D-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. For easy access, visit our Instagram at TND pod and find the link in our bio. Uh, let's get on to our show. This week, we welcome Melissa Bennett-Hines, who works as a gestalt psychotherapist and a clinical social worker. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to, and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers. And this is going to be kind of a long fact. Um, But you know how Belle goes into a bookstore in the beginning of Beating the Beast, and it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, such a great place. I always thought that that was a bookstore for me, but I recently found out that it is a small grocer, just like full full of weird and quirky fruits and vegetables. And um, it's just like, what do you have today? What do, what do you got today, Maurice? Or whatever the book seller's name is. I don't think we know what it is, but I think Maurice is her dad. But Maurice I'm, is her dad. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Like, what do you got? Oh, look at these. Oh, you have a yellow dragon dragon fruit, Maurice. That's great. Let me try that. Lychees. Yes. Oh, beautiful tomatoes. Yes. Mm-mm-mm. Grapes. Sarah recently reintroduced me to grapes. Grapes. Um, <laughs> and I, it's just like, I love all different kinds of fruits and vegetables, finding out about them, feeding them to my baby. I found it. <laughs> That's really cool. I'm also picturing you, you know, in this grocer and then going outside to dance in the fountain and telling everybody about, you know, how wonderful the grocer is and then being like, that Joanne is so quirky. <laughs> yes. Look at her. There's all these apples tumbling out of her bag. Oh, and I'm Sarah, an LBC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I am a cis at white woman. My pronouns are she, her. And I have been doing a lot of research, reading, and listening about Karen Carpenter the past couple of weeks. Wow. I liked Karen Carpenter before. And mm-hmm. I like her more now. And I also have more feelings about her okay. for her in service of her. <laughs> she's <laughs> a really, she's a really exciting topic. And I don't want to say that and further just the mystique around her, because I think that was happening a lot as I'm learning during this research. <laughs> she's just uh, heavily, as any female performer can be heavily fetishized and dehumanized. And uh, But what a cool subject and what an amazing musician uh, yeah. and wonderful individual. So you're just a person, just a person being a person. 
So that's what I've been doing, Joanna, besides puzzles. Nice. Finished my Starry Night Lego. And I don't know oh. if I told you this, but I can hang it on the wall because it's like Whoa, built, that's built awesome. into a frame and it has a little, it's 3D. So it has this little like outshoot. I'm making a really important motion for listeners. Yes. It has this little outshoot where there's like a little Van Gogh painting. <laughs> that's very night. cute. <laughs> so yeah. Cool. That's what's been going on in my world. It's not bad. Yeah. That doesn't sound, that sounds great. Yeah. It's pretty nice. I've been going to grocers. I wasn't going to go because like you had to park on the street and I wasn't mm-hmm. sure. But then I got a parking spot right away. Just like threw the door open when I went in there, you know. Yeah, I know. Bell, Bell just like walks. Oranges. Bell just. Like, oh, yes. Those the big the big nubs. But Bell just like walks from her, you know, home, which seems to be on the outskirts of the village. And she just walks into the to the far. I always wonder like in these like villages, me walking into Fishtown. Yeah. You walking into Fishtown, but like how are all these businesses sustained because there's like five houses <laughs> and how many people are I don't know. Clearly a lot of people weren't going in the bookshop because Belle was judged fairly heavily for I don't know her books. Whatever. And how like how relevant that there's someone yelling about how eggs are too expensive. Mm. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there yeah. Anyway. <laughs> they are. They are expensive. Just so you know, baby loves kiwis. That is oh, that's his new fruit nice. of the week, and he loves them. So. That sounds really nice. I love an early fruit introduction. Mm-hmm. He mangoes and kiwis and black beans are are his. Oh, and tomatoes. He also really likes tomatoes. I feel really uh, opened up to mangoes recently, just because finding like an easier way to peel them, <laughs> easier way to get to the fruit, <laughs> is nice. Um, They're tough. Yeah, they are, and I just you know I've done like a peeler i've done the method where you like cut the bottom and you put it in a glass and you like push it down i hurt myself a lot doing that that sounds and painful yeah it doesn't yeah the best easy. way is just a little steak knife just and it works perfectly yeah and then you just compost the big dumb seed on the inside you can actually also give those to babies um because they're good to chew on and oh, nice. they like help develop all their muscles in their mouths okay so. i'll give it to a baby preferably like a baby you know a baby i know a baby (laughs) you know i like that for a tv show a baby you know know. (laughs) china do you have any housekeeping i do my floors are so dirty can we hear all about it (laughs) so there's there is some visual components to this for sarah (laughs) um i was talking about last week how i was making a puzzle that was skeins of yarn and i realized that that word is like skein is a bunch of different types of things and I might have a different understanding of what that word is than most people uh if Sarah you'll refer to your pictures um the first picture I sent you you'll see first of all a twisted hank and a skein look the same they look like Armenian cheese when (laughs) they do they do yeah yeah. And so that's what I believe a skein is. There's we'll also this. Yeah. There's also what's called a pull pull skein, a bullet skein. I just thought skein was just like a thing of yarn. I thought it was just like a an outlier word for that, but apparently there's a lot of different words. So it could also be a hank, a twisted hank. It looks like a crawler donut. Is that it does, it does, it does. Because there's two different types of crawlers too. So I don't want to introduce that confusion into <laughs> yeah that will land confusing (laughs) confusingly for me i think that we'll definitely post these um for Mm -hmm. folks that are really just on the edge of their seat it does look like this one in the far corner hankenstein hankenstein is just Mm -hmm. like a joke yeah that is a joke yes (laughs) (laughs) just make a joke they also call like when you pull out of a pull skein 
you pull it out and if there's there's a lot of yarn they call it yarn barf so that's fun that and it's really annoying yeah <laughs> all right wonderful yeah. I anyway, have how are your floors they're fine as usual I don't remember um I remember I made any you. mistakes thank <laughs> you <laughs> I read them down in my little book thank you well thank you also for painting me historic like as history speaks in a in a good light thank you history is written by your friends okay i don't know what you're talking about because that's fine the listeners will get it (laughs) all right well uh stay tuned as we head on over to our history lesson for today and now it's time for our lesson or history lesson the lesson is compiled facts describing history and our current events, good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Joanna. Yes. We have one source for today. Oh my goodness. Uh, via psychology, or excuse me, via positivepsychology.com, we have an article entitled Gestalt Therapy Explained, History Definitions and Examples by Joshua Schultz Saidi. No content warning today, so listen at your leisure. First, we're going to talk a little bit about what Gestalt Therapy is. Gestalt therapy is a process psychotherapy with the goal of improving one's contact in community and with the environment in general. This goal is accomplished through aware, spontaneous, and authentic dialogue between client and therapist. Awareness of differences and similarities is encouraged while interruptions to contact are explored in the present therapeutic relationship. This was a quote from Charles Bowman, in 1998, a Gestalt therapy scholar and practitioner. A process psychotherapy is one that focuses on process over discrete events. This means that Gestalt therapists are more interested in the process as a whole rather than individual events or experiences. This goal is accomplished through aware, spontaneous, and authentic dialogue between client and therapist. Gestalt psychotherapists use a relational here and now framework meaning that they prioritize the current interactions with the client over history and past experience. Awareness of differences and similarities is encouraged while interruptions to contact are explored in the present therapeutic relationship. Gestalt therapy draws upon dialectical thinking, love that, and polarization to help the client achieve balance, equilibrium, contact, and health. I want to talk a little bit quickly about the history of Gestalt therapy. Uh, It is tempting to buy into the, quote, great man theory, unquote, of Gestalt therapy and give all of the credit to Fritz Perls. However, the story is more nuanced than this. We'll focus on three founders, Fritz Perls, Laura Perls, and Paul Goodman. Gestalt therapy originated in Germany in the 1930s. Fritz and Laura Perls were psychoanalysts in Frankfurt and Berlin. The Perls' idea differed from Freud so radically that they broke off and formed their own discipline. In 1933, they fled Nazi Germany to South Africa, where they formulated much of Gestalt therapy. They eventually moved to New York and wrote the book on Gestalt therapy with the anarchist writer and Gestalt therapist Paul Goodman. Fritz Perls was a charismatic leader and exciting presenter who spread the teachings of Gestalt therapy widely across America in the 1950s through live demonstrations. He continued to appear on television and magazines until he died in 1970. There are still many Gestalt institutes in operation across the world today, including the original one in New York. All right. Well, I'm so excited to talk to our guests for today. So stay tuned as we move on to our interview for today. Here we go.
Melissa Bennett Hines obtained her master's degree in clinical social work from Columbia University class of 2002 and is a graduate of Gestalt Associates for Psychotherapy in New York City, New York. In addition to her background in Gestalt therapy, she obtained her bachelor and master's degree from the esteemed conservatory Manhattan School of Music in New York City, where she majored in oboe performance. She is a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in the states of New York, Washington, Texas, and North Carolina, and has over 20 years of specialized training and experience in the treatment of addiction, PTSD, sexual trauma, childhood abuse, chronic mental illness, and mood and anxiety disorders. Melissa brings her background as a professional classical musician and deep spirituality together in her unique approach to treatment in the creative and experiential therapy of Gestalt. Melissa, welcome. Welcome. Welcome, fellow classical musician. Yes. Thank you so much. It's really good to be here. And what a lovely introduction to listen to. As I was listening to the explanation of Gestalt and the history of Gestalt, I'm thinking now through a lens of whatever number of years I have been um, a Gestalt therapist, but I'm listening to it going, I'm so glad we're going to be talking about that definition because what does it even mean? (laughs) (laughs) And to someone who is um, unfamiliar or new to Gestalt therapy, it's it's hard to understand um, when somebody tries to condense it down into a few sentences that I'm realizing don't explain what mm. I've learned it to be and what it means. Yeah. So, well, well, can you give us um, your definition if it's possible? Yeah, it's such, I love being asked that question and I always have to take a breath because I'm like, where do I start? <laughs> Um, so Gestalt is a German word. Um, we don't have a direct translation in the English language for this word, but it is best to be translated as form, organization, or relationship. And it's the relationship among and with people that we're really interested in. Um, it's the relationship that has meaning. So for an example, if I were to sing you happy birthday in the key of C. And then I switched and sang it to you in the key of F. It would be immediately recognizable as happy birthday because the individual notes in and of themselves are not what's recognizable. It's the pattern of those notes and the phrases. So another important part of Gestalt that I love to emphasize is it is a psychotherapy that starts from a growth or a health model. Um, at the time when Fritz and Laura Pearls were practicing psychoanalysts in Germany, they were, Freud and his colleagues were really limited at that time as to what they had available to them. And they took from medicine. So Freud was a medical doctor, as was Fritz. He was also an, an MD. They took from the idea of medicine, pathology. And pathology, it has to do with something that's unhealthy. So if some, if a lab a scientist looks at a cell under a microscope, a pathologist looks at a cell under a microscope, what they're looking for is an abnormality in the structure of the cell. And that was the model from which Freud treated people, you know, as if they're, they're sick and there's something abnormal or wrong with how they're showing up in the world. Gestalt therapy doesn't start from that at all. It starts from a model of health and regulation and whatever the person is doing 
even if it's learned much later in life that it's a pattern that becomes um, repeating this out of our awareness or character logical, it at once, one point in their life started from a place of health where they learned as a way of survival in the world. When it becomes problematic is when it becomes unhealthy. Um, but he really shifted his view of the treatment of people is not looking at them as sick or not looking at, at them as there's something wrong with them. Um, but he really wanted to encompass uh, more of a res- looking at the person as a response to their environment. And that was radical at that time. It wasn't just Fritz Perls that gets accredited with Gestalt therapy, although we often do refer to him as the grandfather. But it's really about what is healthy is defined in the situation. Um, so what is healthy at one point later on becomes unhealthy. So what is Gestalt therapy? What we're interested in is looking at character logical patterns. So patterns that have developed that at one time were healthy, but have become rigid and fixed and out of someone's awareness. And how that happens in the psychotherapeutic relationship is from using the relationship, both the therapist and the patient coming in with all of our characterological structures in place and use what's happening in the present to inform what occurred in the past and either what enriches what's happening in the moment or and supports what's happening in the moment or what deflects or detracts from. And in Gestalt, we talk about them as interruptions in contact. You know, there's not, I don't think, I think it's very probably a safe statement to say that I don't know of any particular therapy that doesn't believe that the past somehow informs how we're operating today as human beings, right? That our past has something to do with what's happening today. And what Fritz Perls saw and was curious about was not looking at the past and analyzing um, or interpreting how that's informing what's happening in the moment, but using what's happening in the moment between the therapist and the patient as informing us of what's relevant about the past, you know? And so getting out of that content of the facts of what somebody's telling you and getting into the relationship, those characterological patterns are naturally going to show up. And the work as the therapist then is right in front of you. You don't have to analyze anything. You don't have to interpret anything. It's more about noticing what's happening in the moment, noticing both for yourself as a therapist that informs us because we are the tool in the room and in response to what is coming up for the client in that moment with you. And I'm going to pause there because that was a lot. Albeit also not enough. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only just beginning, (laughs) but I would love to engage in hearing any responses you have to that? Because I saw a lot of affect. I know the listener isn't going to see yeah. the facial expressions, but Joanna in particular, I saw <laughs> smiles and I saw nodding. And Sarah, your microphone's a little bit covering your <laughs> bottom half of your face. On purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I'm curious about that. So I would, I wanted to just kind of take a moment and pause in all of that and invite you to have a response to it. What are some of your thoughts? What are your curiosities that are showing up? 
I am immediately thinking of, I mean, if we're talking dialectics and if we're talking material conditions, thinking about these individuals developing this practice. And like you said, you know, Melissa, keeping in mind that there were other folks involved in its development, but that this was born under, in a place that was experiencing a rise of fascism. And this, we're talking 50 years after Karl Marx died, someone who, you know, gave us the term of dialectics or not, you know, really popularized it for us. And this person that understanding the cultural shifts that were happening when we were just being introduced to the ideas of what happens to you in your life affects you for life. And, you know, the choices they had to make to obviously flee and continue. And like this also choice they made to have a anarchist writer. Like I'm just thinking of these very radical people in a world that was very unradical and the sorry motorcycle and we're like we're radical in not a great way yes yeah because yes because radical has been yeah it is radical in like a very yeah it's a level like spikes of a well radical itself is just rooted in rooted in the most intense ways that a value and belief can be held so yes yes nazism is absolutely radical less so now but just thinking about when we're living in a world that is very yes joanna really like staunchly unaccepting and these folks were just forcing acceptance and not just forcing it but discovering it and fostering it and trying to trying to make way for people to be able to experience health and relief while not placing blame, but also calling for responsibility. And Joanna could speak about this for hours about dialectical behavioral therapy, how it does call for that as well. So just from a historical standpoint, like thinking about the conditions these folks were developing this in, and then thinking about the choices that they made afterwards, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sold. I'm just excited to hear, or I'm excited to be hearing about what was going on for these folks when this, when this happened and like, what a, what amazing choices these were. I'm getting a little repetitive, so I'll stop, but I want to hear other thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, I started thinking about myself. Um, so just the total opposite and which is like the work that I'm doing with myself to really accept those things and, and just like notice patterns in my life and where, where I can kind of change them for the better as a new parent, it's, it's almost like very imperative for me because I'm like, I don't, there's some things that I just don't want to impart on my child and kind of like looking back and, and just like realizing those patterns that have been going on for generations and generations and generations that I just want, you know, I, I, I want to be able to accept myself and in that process, help foster that in my child. I love hearing these two very different responses, you know, like Sarah of thinking of the field and the field at that time and what was going on in like the 1930s, the 1940s. And one of the things I just really admire so much in Fritz Perls is he had this innate resilience and there was something innate that he was born with that he was radical in his, his operating, you know, he served in the trenches in world war one. And that was the start of what we would probably call today PTSD. And he went into treatment um, when he, when the war was over and that was when he 
decided he wanted to become a physician. His family's idea for his life was he was going to follow in his family's footsteps. So he had an uncle who was a lawyer and maybe there was someone else in his family who was also a lawyer. And that was what he was supposed to do. And he really fought against that and went into medicine. And right there to me, that very first step he took um, was so radical, you know, because how how much conformity at that time was there in society? I think today it's a lot more accepted to not conform in some ways. But yeah, when you think of what was going on during World War One and what happened when he came out and how horrible that must have been because there wasn't really anything to guide him. So I just, I find that very profound when I think about his life and what was happening in that moment. And also, you know, I appreciate Joanna thinking of in terms of the patterns that you have developed in response to the field around you and the field for generations that have gone on that have informed them of how to be in the world and what got passed down. And then how are you passing that or not? And the one thing I really want to highlight, Joanna, that you had said, that is the thing about Gestalt that resonates so powerfully for me is awareness without judgment. You know, there is no judgment of the patterns that we've developed. They just are, you know, they're neither good nor bad. You know, some of them are healthy. Some of them are unhealthy. Some of them we want to keep around right? And maybe even do more of. And some of them, we want to have a mindfulness or an awareness without judgment around what is happening. And all that does for me as a therapist, my only goal is awareness of what we're doing, what we're feeling, what we're thinking, what we're experiencing, an awareness of the other in relationship to us, how we're impacting them, how we're receiving them. Because what that does is give us a choice. When we have an awareness of something, then we have a choice. We either continue it or change it or don't. And you can't do that if you're over there judging yourself for whatever's happening. And when I sit with people, I hear those layers and layers and layers and layers of just brutality, judgment. You know, we talk to ourselves probably more than anyone else in our lifetimes, right? If we think mm-hmm. about the dialogue you're having with yourself, when you start listening to it and paying attention to how you're treating yourself, you know, and what I hear when I bring that out in the work is how critical people are, how much judgment they have, how much shame they feel. And then there's shame on top of shame. And getting those interruptions as much as I can into somebody's awareness of when that's happening so they can make a different choice in the moment of what to do. And that's just full of hope and possibility and curiosity. Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm still digesting and also wanting to another thing I've been thinking a lot about is my body in space and just like how it takes up again, like seeing my child like just do whatever he wants to do and like how much maybe I've closed myself off or like not been as present as I feel like I am with my body. If that makes sense. Yeah. You, I hear that you're seeing yourself through watching him interact in the world and move in the world. And that's informing you maybe of something you've done or haven't done. Yeah. 
and bringing that to an awareness, right? When you see him, I heard you say moving so freely. Maybe I haven't moved so freely. Mm. Maybe yeah. there's a way to take up space might not have taken up before or not. But with the beautiful part of that that I hear is the, the window you're getting to view yourself through now because you have this external being that you're watching and watching over, right? So you're very <laughs> attentive to I'm not just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not. I mean, you're really attentive, but that is allowing you to really take in movement, maybe voice, mm. choice. That's very lovely to hear. <laughs> but, it, you know, your child can be a form of, in some ways, reflective therapy. Yeah. Of showing you your patterns. Yeah, I mean, because they also pick up the patterns that, you know, of speaking, of moving, like I was like, oh, I think I move my eyebrows a lot because this baby is like always like, hmm. And, um, but yeah, it, it's it's a great mirror. And, and I, I, I like I like the idea of of acceptance in, in terms. I mean, in DBT is is like radical acceptance is like we have to be aware of these things before we can move to change them if that's what we want to do. And I, I like that's that's like the bot like that's for me like ground level of like what what I want to do for myself for the future is just like be mindful and and like accept limitations and find my emotions things like that it makes me think that there's a lot of introduced room for looking forward to what you are going to be able to call your own in the future. Joanna, you you kind of highlighting that too, like, oh, you know, I see this, I see that this kind of freedom and space and movement is possible, you know, and instead of that judgment that may come in of, oh, I don't get to do this, almost like, oh, maybe I can get to do this. Like these, these concepts and constructs that we very much hold on to. And I'm thinking, I saw this on a Big Mouth episode, so I'm really thinking about it recently, but just like raising your child as, you know, gendered, like maybe, maybe like not many people now feel, want to, want to take that, to take that like really, really like loving step to just raise a child as a, you know, without gender, but, but also we don't have a lot of like knowledge about how to do it. Um, so, so I think that there's this like really nice really nice opening we're making for ourselves that we're learning how to do it and we're not going to be really wonderful at it yet. I read I read this recently too about this, you know, what I'm writing in this book may be very radical now, but in the future it might not be. So let's continue to grow with each other. Let's not drop anchor and stay where that anchor is and judge the like the hell out of it. Let's let's continue to move forward and drop anchor every now and then. So this idea that we're actually just making room for us to be better, to be more of what we can be. Yeah. And as a gestalt therapist, what I hear when you acknowledge that making room for is making room for all of the parts that make us who we are, even the parts we don't know about yet, or are unknown, or we don't like, or we don't know how to allow them to be known or come forward. I love that image of dropping the anchor. I have a colleague who says, he says, we grip down on that bone. You know, when you think of like a, a dog with their bone, you know, and they're just not going to give it up. We can just maybe set the bone down for a moment. And I was thinking that that was another thing I wanted to kind of highlight what was so different and is so different about the Gestalt approach is when Fritz and Laura Pearls and Goodman came along, 
that they moved away from that stance of an interpretive approach that Freud had, that he was interpreting what was happening, interpreting meaning for the patient to a phenomenological approach, which all that means is how we make meaning of something in the world and how I make meaning of something versus how anyone else will make meaning of something is unique to me, you know, based upon so many different factors, you know, gender, gender identity, sexuality, family of origin, religion, culture, race, economic status, right? Like all of that influences. And then it's my own psychological makeup too, right? Like how I, what my personality is, you know, how I've already filtered process learned to be informs the next thing um, of what, how I'm going to respond to something or how I'm going to allow space for a part of me to show up or not. And I really love that aspect of development and the, and, and that component in Gestalt is the curiosity I get to have as a clinician to know and ask about what does it mean for you? Because what it means to me is one thing. And yeah, I'm, I'm an expert, um, but I'm not an expert in your experience. You are. And the, the, the process of a, of a relationship in Gestalt of bringing that forward, allowing for the experience to be heard, be seen, be known, be held and played with is um, allows for that development of what you were talking about. Right. So like maybe as a parent or the decisions we make about parenting in terms of this new opening that we're really talking more about of gender and sexuality and allowing space for those parts to be known or just asked, right? Not imposing what your belief system or how you make meaning of it. But in particular, as a parent, I love that we're using this metaphor today of how do you do that with a child? How do you allow for that child to make that meaning? And there's that subtle not, and not so subtle pressure of, oh, you also have to teach this child, right? <laughs> there's like that balance that you must find somehow as a parent in, in guiding and teaching and also allowing for them to emerge as humans and however they're going to identify and make meaning of. Yeah. Also trying to like decrease the harm to them. I, I was going to say, make sure they don't get hurt. But then I was like, wait a minute, but like, there's more than there's also harm, but then it's like, well, what is, what is, yeah, it's maybe a much larger <laughs> thought than, than I can say right now. But um, it also got me thinking about how like the self as the therapist in Gestalt therapy, it seems like there's also a lot of work that you've done through through becoming a gestalt therapist and then like continual work because there's so much of yourself within that relationship with the client. Yes, that's another important part of being a gestalt therapist. So I appreciate that highlight. Um, so depending on who you talk to, where they train, because yes, as already noted, there are training institutions all over the world. And depending on your that the structure of that school, it ranges anywhere from two years to four years. And I'm going to only speak from the experience I had and have had even prior to training. My first entrance into therapy was when I was 21. And I had 
come to, at that time I was very depressed. I had a crisis in a relationship. I did had no idea how, what to do, where to go. Um, I didn't even really understand what was happening. Took me a long time to even understand what was happening um, for me. But that was my entrance into therapy and had a couple of very long-term therapists until I found my way into Gestalt. And I started with a Gestalt therapist after I finished graduate school and my first clinical supervisor and my first job in community mental health was a Gestalt therapist. And in my first supervision session with her, she said to me, you're going to go to the gap. And what I'm thinking I don't shop at the Gap. Um, <laughs> and the an acronym for where I studied in New York was the breakout school away from Fritz's original. It's called the Gestalt Associates for Psychotherapy. And so I, I've been in therapy up until that point. Started with a Gestalt, working with a Gestalt therapist a couple of years prior to um, beginning that program. And then through the program, you're required to be in therapy every week. And then for two of those years, you're in group therapy on top of individual therapy every week. And then we come together as a group of trainees and we have a lot of process because Gestalt therapy is teaching us how to use the relationship to be therapists. And that, so they use the relationships in the process of training to teach us. It is a constant um, process of working on yourself um, and understanding your patterns. And um, it's amazing to me. I'm still in therapy today. I see a therapist. I see a Gestalt therapist. And we get to work over a computer now. It is really astounding to me that even after 20 plus years of being a patient in therapy, much of that twice or more a week. Um, some of it every week. Now it's every other week. Um, I would love to go back to every week. I'm going to tell you right now, I miss that consistency. I miss seeing him. I miss that space held for me. But it's amazing how I continue to see parts revealed and things emerge, depending on where I'm at in life, what's going on in life. I married later in life. I married when I was 42. And so what emerged out of that um, were parts of me that I wasn't so familiar with, you know, and then what shows up in my practice, what shows up as a business person, what shows up as a therapist and the work is ever revealing itself to me. And it's absolutely essential um, I wish we would just take away CEUs. I wish we would do away no more CEUs. Forget it. I don't need one more training on suicide prevention. All right. I've had 22 years in the field. I've, I've heard about, I don't need that. What I need is ongoing reflection of myself and the ongoing support and the ongoing um, dialogue I get to have in relationship with my therapist. That's what we should require of therapists, in my opinion. And I think even, you know, since your this podcast is dedicated to destigmatization of mental health and therapy, um, I really want to highlight that. I, I think every therapist should be in therapy. I think it's essential. And if you're a person, a lay person listening to this podcast, if you ask your therapist if they're in therapy and they tell you no, I would think about that as 
as the choice because if they are in therapy and they're not telling you, that's a concern for me. And if they're not in therapy, that's also a concern for me. Mm-hmm. It isn't about being sick. It isn't about, oh, there's something so wrong. I see therapy now as there's so, there's so much right that I get to go and look at these parts of myself. That is a place of luxury and privilege and honor. And it's a commitment of time. It's a financial commitment. And I am so grateful I get to do that. That's wonderful. Oh, what a Oh, what a good, I, I agree. I think that that is a rule across the board. Hello, listeners. As always, a deep thank you to you for listening. We are so excited to continue this interview. So stay tuned for part two coming to you soon. If you would like early access to full interviews, check out our Patreon again at patreon.com slash TND podcast. Take a look at the show notes for important links. And uh, Sarah, as always, we are your therapist, your therapist next door. Next door. <laughs> Thank you.